Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zach Ernest, and in each episode, producer David Davis and I highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. In this episode, we're looking back at the biggest stories from this foul year of our Lord 2020 in Oregon's outdoors. We'll meet a man who drank a Rolling Rock beer in the middle of a wildfire, talk about the moment Oregon coast towns kicked out the tourists, and highlight an ancient ghost wagon that rose from the mud of Detroit Lake. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, David, so in this podcast, we are looking back on one of the most eventful and difficult years in Oregon's history through the lens of our state's outdoors. We're going to revisit the biggest and most interesting moments and people of the past year, but let's start with this. What are you, on this New Year's Eve, going to remember about 2020? Obviously, the pandemic and then the wildfires really turned our world upside down in ways our generation has really never experienced. Setting aside the big picture for the moment, though, I think 2020 is the year more folks start looking a little closer to home for their outdoor activities. Sure. You know, with sort of the outdoors closing down, yet still the need to be outside, you had to look sort of immediately around you. For me, I dusted off a few bird and plant identification books and poked around some neighborhood parks and green spaces kind of closer to home. It definitely did reemphasize that close-to-home recreation thing. Like, that became a big deal. Like, if you were close to parks and trails, you appreciated them in a way that you probably didn't before. All right. How about you? So one thing that stuck out to me about 2020 was that, look, you know, when newspapers and TV stations, we do these sort of year in review pieces all the time. Normally it's focused on, you know, politics, like uh, the resignation of former Governor John Kitzhopper or business and economics like the Great Recession. But in 2020, many of the biggest stories were very much outdoor and environment stories. And it was a real interesting experience to be right in the middle of covering events that captured, you know, worldwide attention. So the story that I remember the most is I remember doing an interview with the BBC right after the Labor Day fire blow up. Like I was evacuated from my house. I'd just seen the destruction in the Sanium Canyon for the first time. We were wearing masks due to toxic air quality and a global pandemic. And all of a sudden, I'm on the radio with this very nice woman in Great Britain on this radio program I've listened to my entire life, trying to sum up what was happening here. And it was just such a surreal moment. I was just like, what has happened? And I'm still not sure I know the answer. Like, it's going to take a while to, like, wrap your brain around what happened in 2020. Yeah, really, doom and gloom was an overall theme this year with the pandemic forcing us apart and locally the wildfires blocking out the sun for a few weeks. Literally. But we're also going to go ahead and highlight some lighter moments. We'll talk about a woman who set a speed record on the Oregon Pacific Crest Trail to honor her mother, a beloved fire lookout that somehow survived the wildfires, and talk about a man who attempted to leap off an 177-foot waterfall. So, spoiler alert, That attempt did not end super well. But let's get into it. Let's start with a story whose impact will be with us for generations, the Labor Day fires. On the night of September 7th, a historic east wind event ripped across Oregon, fueling an explosion of wildfires, which had previously just been burning in remote places. 
major infernos broke out in the Clackamas, Saniam, McKenzie, and North Umqua River Canyons, along with Southwest Oregon and even the Oregon coast. All totaled, over a million acres were burned, 4,000 homes destroyed, and nine people were killed. Yeah, we've done an entire podcast on the wildfires, so I'm not going to you know, break it down day by day again. But the first takeaway is that this was the worst wildfire season in Oregon history. When you look back, we've had huge wildfires, you know, Biscuit, B&B, the Tillamook Burn, but they almost always stayed in much more remote forest and they didn't tend to destroy towns. The only apt historical comparison comes way back in 1936 when a wildfire fueled by the same kind of east winds burned most of the town of Bandon on the southern Oregon coast. Beyond that, Oregon has been pretty lucky, which brings me to this next point, and that's We've been expecting this for a while. Ever since 2000, as wildfires have gotten larger and larger, and we saw what was happening in California, fire managers have warned us that it's only a matter of time. In 2018, we did a three-part series on the towns most likely to become the quote-unquote next paradise, a reference to the California town that burned down. And we've been talking about home hardening and defensible space and reducing fuel loads for a really long time, over a decade. But even as this east wind event was setting up, we didn't quite believe it was really going to happen. All the ingredients were there, extreme drought, extreme winds, fire on the landscape, and aging power line infrastructure. It was all there, but it was this time that nightmare actually happened. And look, it was a wake-up call. Wildfire is something we're probably going to have to live with more often. So the question now is, what can we learn from this? What steps can we realistically take to stop it from being, you know, a normal forest fire to a calamity? You know, that's kind of the question for what comes next. Following the wildfires, we read a number of harrowing, really wild stories about how people survived. Zach, why don't you tell us the story of Don Myron? Right, so Don Myron was trapped in one of the worst spots you could be Labor Day night. He had a home in the Little North Sanium Canyon, which ended up being one of the deadliest places in Oregon. Five people died in there because there was just a blast furnace of fire roaring up and down the canyon, totally engulfing everything. Don was trapped right in the middle, but he survived by making his way down to the river and spending the night on a rock just perched out in the middle of the Little North. So he's fending off embers with a plastic chair. He's drinking a Rolling Rock beer. You know, we interviewed him for a video, so I'll let him pick it up here. Um, The second branch that landed on my house, I walked outside, and I just saw orange glow throughout the entire sky and ran to the end of the driveway. I sat back off North Fork Road about an eighth of a mile. And uh, it looked down into the canyon and the entire canyon on both sides of the river was just engulfed in flames and you know it just I knew right then and there that I had to run back to the house grab what I could and just get out of there when I got to the bridge I just realized you know I gotta stop I gotta stop and I got to I fortunately had a lantern grabbed the lantern and headed down under the bridge Spent about an hour under the bridge, and then the fire started creeping under the bridge, which moved me downriver further into a wider area. Um, found a green chair, found a rolling rock beer, um, which was kind of nice. Headed across the river, and there was a uh, there was a rock ledge that kind of jetted out further into the river. Um, it looked like a good spot to land. It was well enough 
away from the banks because I quickly realized that you can't be anywhere close to the banks. I mean, there's trees, branches, boulders, just I'd be pummeled. So it was a nice wide spot in the river and I got myself out as far to the center as I could without being in the water. That's where I spent the night. From my experience, um, what I learned and there was no way I could have imagined that um, one, the fire would move so incredibly fast and I had no idea that I could be surrounded by an inferno in just no time. Um, you know, had I not been able, if I weren't in a place where I could have gotten to that spot in the river, I'm not sure I would have made it out. So a little postscript to this, Don was contacted by just about every media outlet in the United States after the story ran, CNN, Good Morning America, Fox News, pretty much everybody. He also received a case of Rolling Rock beer and a bunch of shirts and merchandise because I think his comments about enjoying the beer while surviving this giant wildfire was basically advertising gold. Anyway, the story was an important one just because it highlighted a little bit of light in an otherwise very dark moment. All right, the next big story we're going to talk about has to be the COVID-19 shutdowns in Oregon's outdoors. In late March, as it became apparent that public safety measures were needed to slow the spread of the coronavirus, we believed the outdoors were safe. Zach wrote a bunch of stories about how hiking was a great respite during the pandemic, but of course that was just the beginning. Yeah, like you said, in early on, the outdoors was, you know, the place where we were still allowed to go. But then something happened. The weekend of March 21st and 22nd, which was spring break and just happened to have wonderful weather, people from the Willamette Valley just flooded the Oregon coast. And that terrified local residents, worried that people from big population centers were bringing the virus into the community with limited medical resources. I remember talking to the mayor of Warrenton that night and he was really angry. I mean, he called the tourists a clear and present danger. They were coming to town and like buying up toilet paper and stuff like that. It was pretty brutal. And so his city council and followed by pretty much every city council and county up and down the Oregon coast, they passed these emergency orders forcing outsiders to leave. Like you weren't allowed to stay the night if you didn't live there. That moment kickstarted a shutdown of pretty much all outdoor recreation for more than two months with the idea being that if you close all the cool things people want to do, they won't travel. And that ended up probably being accurate. So every campground, most every trail, all closed. And it led to some Twilight Zone moments. In one example, police actually stopped a guy floating down the Siletz River because he'd launched his boat from a closed boat ramp. In another, two surfers were given fines for trying to get to the ocean beach. Park rangers were standing guard outside the Columbia River Gorge, literally like stopping a dozen people per hour who were trying to go hiking there. Looking back, I still can't believe that happened. Yeah, with all the experience of the first shutdown, officials then focused their efforts after that. During the second shutdown, sort of what we're still in, they made a point to say, Out Oregon's outdoors is still open. We're not closing it. But from that first shutdown, what was your takeaway? You know, honestly, my, my takeaway was that the public land system, which I love more than just about anything, is a little bit of a mess. These shutdowns really expose that because there are so many different agencies that manage outdoor recreation in the state. Ready? I'm going to list them just real quick. Oregon State Parks, U.S. Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, 
U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Oregon Department of Forestry, Oregon Fish and Wildlife Department, county parks, city parks, private timberland. That's nine different agencies, all of which were closing and reopening recreation in their own different ways. And it was so confusing. I probably got like 10 emails a day just from people who were like, hey, is this open? What about this? And the agencies were all a little bit different. They tried to be in a line, but it's really hard. It's like getting cats to walk in a straight line. So if you were going to redesign our public land system, you would never do it this way. Like have like, hey, we're going to have eight different agencies right on top of each other, all manage these different trails. It's it's insane. But then again, I don't want to complain too much because the alternative of it, of it all being like private land, not very good. So maybe we should just let it slide. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So we talked about the shutdown, how strange that was. But eventually all the public land agencies reopened recreation and he could go most places. But the fact COVID had shut down many other options meant that the outdoors was still kind of all that was left. And it led to a very crowded, very chaotic summer in Oregon's outdoors. You know, this wasn't unexpected. We kind of figured there would be a rush of people headed out because, again, there was nothing else to do. But what ended up happening was a combination of stories that were very bizarre and then really sad. The fuel here was the fact that you had all these people going to the outdoors for the first time. Yeah, you know, that idea of the, the rookie hiker or the rookie boater or something. And when you have that many people crammed into these areas, many of them with, with little experience, it leads to some weird outcomes. And so here are two, just two headlines of stories that I wrote on this topic. So here's the first headline. Central Oregon hikers taking drugs, needing rescue, frustrate searchers. Yeah, so for a while, there was a spate of stoned hikers that had to be rescued around Bend. It happened like three times in a week or something, and the guy that led teams out there was super annoyed because it was people coming from outside the area, so coming over to Bend, taking all kinds of different drugs, and then getting lost because they're so busy getting in touch with nature, they lose the trail. Anyway, so that was that was one problem that they faced. Here's, here's another headline that, again, illustrates the bizarreness of this summer. Teenager was cliff jumping when he leaped off a 177-foot waterfall at Silver Falls. So yeah, a teenager whose father was apparently a famous cliff diver in Hawaii decided that he would take up his father's mantle by leaping off 177-foot South Falls at Silver Falls State Park. Like, this really happened with a ton of people watching. The teen was obviously injured and had to be taken to the hospital, but was okay and released the next day. My favorite nugget was that when they told his father, and this was in the police report, his dad was like, oh, that's that's pretty cool. Some poor judgment calls there. It's just weird, man. So these are obviously some extreme examples, but really what we heard all summer were that there was just a bunch of people who had, you know, never spent much time outdoors, heading out, probably unprepared, no food, no water. You know, people try and put down camp in some really strange places. Yeah, a lot of people going out in flip-flops. Like, you know, they're going to like a wilderness trail and they're wearing flip-flops. But the serious part of this is that it led to a real spike in both fatal accidents and the number of people that needed to be rescued. So the best place to measure this number was with a story that we just published about how this year saw the highest number of boating deaths since 1979. And that's, I mean, 1979 was just a totally different time. This year, what really fueled it was basically people like going to Big Five, picking up an inflatable kayak, and then floating down rivers without really knowing what 
needed to do. You know, a lot of them didn't have life jackets. They'd fall into cold water, which makes it really difficult to swim and save yourself. Or they would just run into a tree because they couldn't navigate it around it. There's just a lot less margin for error when you get on the water and don't have experience. And that led to a lot of really heartbreaking outcomes. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll talk about some of the more interesting stories of the year, including the ghost wagon of Detroit Lake, a Eugene woman who set a speed record by basically sprinting across the Pacific Crest Trail, and a beloved fire outlook that somehow survived the wildfires. Stay with us. following message is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council. Did you know the forest sector is helping provide essential products to the American public in response to COVID-19? From tissue to hygiene products to face masks and paper bags to packaging and lumber for do-it-yourself home projects, the forest sector is working safely and efficiently to meet the daily needs of American families during these challenging times. AFRC stands for Sustainable Forests and Healthy Communities. Learn more at amforest.org. All right, welcome back. In the second half of the podcast, we're going to move a little faster. I'm going to read a headline. Zach will tell us a little bit about it. The first one is definitely going to need a little bit of explanation, (laughs) though. So here we go. So the headline is, Ghost Wagon Rises from the Detroit Lake Mud. This one sort of brings up some questions about how we should treat historic artifacts on public lands. Right. So this story was before the wildfires and even COVID-19, that wonderful moment in time that we now call the before times. <laughs> so this was actually from last January. And just like the headline said, a wagon rose out of the mud in the bottom of Detroit Lake. And here's the background. The town of Detroit was not always in its current location. It once sat along the banks of the North Sanium River in the late 1800s as mostly a timber town and outpost with horse-drawn wagons. When Detroit Dam was built in the 1950s, old Detroit was flooded and the town displaced, moved to its current location. But there was some stuff left behind. And one of those things was these wagons from right around the turn of the century. And you know, submerged in that mud and water, it has been preserved and kept intact in this low oxygen environment. And when the reservoir gets low enough, which first occurred in 2015 and then in the beginning of 2020, you can get a view of this wagon by walking through this incredibly deep and sticky mud. It's really hard to even get out and see it, but you can make it happen if you're pretty intrepid. Now, it's important not to touch it, if it ever does show up again, because it does disappear back under the water pretty quick. But the fact that it's there and sometimes shows up is pretty cool. It's just this blast from the past. My favorite thing about this is that this is clearly a wagon that nobody wanted when the town flooded. Like, it had been out of use for a pretty long time. But now when it shows up, it becomes like an internet sensation. Like, the story was picked up in a million different places. And, I mean, it was a big deal. Yeah, it's like this discarded item that's now this, you know crazy piece of the past. Well, it's sort of like the stuff that we're seeing like with Pompeii, like everything that is super commonplace back then, but now we see now, we're just like, wow, that's the most amazing thing. And back in the day, they'd been like, yeah, that was our toilet paper. (laughs) All right. Next up, we have a somewhat more serious story, but an important one. Here's the headline. Oregon wilderness permit for three sisters, Jefferson, delayed until 2021. Yeah, it's funny. So coming into this year, I thought that this was going to be the really big story of the year. So 
after a long, you know, arduous process, this new permit system was going to be installed in three wilderness areas, the Mount Jefferson, Mount Washington, and Three Sisters. So to control crowding, a half million acres of Oregon's most beautiful backcountry was going to require getting one of a limited number of permits to camp and hike there. Ironically, the system sounds perfect for the COVID-19 age, but the shutdowns were so disruptive, the Forest Service didn't feel like it could get the system online and running for the summer. So they basically punted to 2021. And man, how nice would it be if this was the big story a year from now? Like such little stuff happened in 2021 that like we came to the year end and we were like, wow, it was pretty crazy, that permit system. Here's the next headline. Eugene Woman sets Oregon Pacific Crest Trail speed record at 455 miles in just seven days. That is a wonderful headline. I really like that headline. (laughs) Yeah, so this is the feel-good story of the year. The Eugene woman in question here is Emily Halnon. Last year, she lost her mother to a rare type of cancer. And so to honor her memory and to raise money for rare cancer research, Emily decided to try and set what's known as the fastest known time on the Oregon section of the Pacific Crest Trail. So the fastest known time thing is uh, it's a very popular thing right now where people just it's how you compete in a world where we're not really discovering new stuff. You see how fast you can climb Mount Hood or how fast you can climb all three sisters. And this is a big one. The Oregon section of the PCT is, you know, that's well traveled ground. And so she set out to break the record and she did it. She ran 455 miles in about a week. And here's the statistic that really grabs you. She averaged 57 miles per day. Like that is bananas. I've only backpacked 57 miles like once in my life and that was over a week. She ran 57 miles per day every day, running from well before dawn until after dusk. She did have a team to help her out. This was a supported record, but there were brutal moments like she ran through a snowstorm in the Mount Jefferson wilderness. Like she had to run through it like in shorts and stuff like that. You know, she pulled it off though and she raised $32,000 for rare cancer research. And my favorite part of the story was really Emily's personality because this wasn't like a joyless death march. She's really goofy. She's a fun person. She was having like dance parties on the trail with her friends. She, you know, worked with her friends to invent romance novels like to keep her entertained during these 22-hour runs. So... You bring all that together and it's just, it was a fun, feel-good story that was kind of a nice balm to everything else that was going on this year. So we've recognized the loss of forests and buildings in the wildfires, but there was also an element of human loss as well. Here's the headline. Georgia Tia, icon who saved Opal Creek and changed Oregon, confirmed dead in Beachy Creek fire. Yeah, this one was incredibly sad and, and touched a lot of people. So Georgia Tia, who is the nephew of former Governor Vicatia, was one of the towering figures of Oregon's so-called forest wars. And he's specifically linked to Opal Creek. So through the 1980s and 90s, the Opal Creek area drainage was targeted for logging. And that's not unusual at all. Just about all of Oregon's old forests were cut over the years. But through a combination of factors, Opal Creek never was. And George made it his mission in life to ensure that it stayed primeval. And he succeeded, creating the wildly popular Opal Creek Wilderness and Scenic Area, 30,000 acres of giant trees, swimming holes, and waterfalls that became among the most popular places in Oregon. Sadly, George died at his home in the Elkhorn community as the Beachy Creek Fire roared out of control during the Labor Day wind event. 
We wrote a 16-part series on his fight, though, and you can read it at statesmanjournal.com. And here's just a little audio of him talking about it. And he said, you're only eight years old. There's not a damn thing you can do about it. That started the whole fight for Albuquerque. I was going to do whatever I could to do it. And I, in, inside me, I was willing to break any law and do anything to stop them. You only get to cut the old growth once, and they didn't yeah. realize And that's one that thing. We never, I never would let them cut the old growth. I wasn't looking at myself. I wasn't focused on myself. I was focused on this forest. Last ranger that I really remember told me, George, you're the environmentalist from hell. You're just one of the damn hippies. And this ain't no hippie resort. <laughs> well, that Opal Creek, I'm gonna have a cut within a month. Guess what? He's long gone. <laughs> if I wasn't fighting the Forest Service, I was in court constantly. Anything we could do, whether it's mining law, we just use everything that we could. So we built the bear trail. Well, and then the Forest Service came and said, well, there's a trail up there. Who built it? I said, we just saw some bears walking down one morning and with chainsaws? Uh-huh. <laughs> and so that's how the bear trail was built. I wanted people into Opal Creek because we didn't have a trail at all. And by having people go there, they one, they saw it, and two, they became indebted to what was going on. All right, up next, a really fun and natural event which took place this summer was the Neowise Comet. It became a popular photographic subject, and it's really no exception here in Oregon. Our coworker, registered guard photographer Chris Peach, headed down to the D. Wright Observatory in the McKenzie Pass for a look and captured some really amazing photographs. I took a few pretty subpar pictures <laughs> of it, but it was fun to see in the night sky, just given how things were going on Earth. You know, the thing that stuck out about it was that the comet was bright enough to see with the naked eye. And, you know, that's pretty rare. The last time a comet was this bright was apparently 1997. So it just provided this once-in-a-decade opportunity to make some amazing pictures. And or and Oregon's army of outdoor photographers really rose to the occasion. Um when you look around on Instagram and places like that, just the, the places where they put the comets, you know, in front of above a mountain or something like that, like it's, it's really beautiful. And so it was just this nice little moment, again, in the middle of kind of a very crappy year. All right. So with more people in the outdoors, it stands to reason that some of them were up to no good. Here's the headline. Four Oregonians charged with poaching 27 big game animals could face $162,000 in fines. Yeah, so just like there was record numbers of people in the outdoors this year and a lot of problems that came with it, there appears to have been a record amount of poaching going on as well. I don't have the final tally yet uh, because the year just ended and so that'll come in a week or so. But whether it was this incident where four guys were charged with illegally killing 27 animals over two years or the examples that seem to roll in every week uh, from the Oregon State Police – it was just a bad year for poaching. Since we're talking about animals, there were a number of developments around endangered species in Oregon as well. What happened this year? Well, gray wolves uh, were removed from the Federal Endangered Species Act protection across the West, and that includes in Oregon, where there's an estimated 150 known wolves across the state right now, probably a little bit more. This action doesn't change a whole lot because wolves are strictly managed by Oregon's wildlife agency. So it's not like this opens up a big game hunting season on them right away. 
But generally, you know, conservation groups are very opposed, saying that wolves are definitely not ready to lose these kind of protections. Ranching groups are, are in favor, saying that, you know, there's a lot of wolves out there. They don't need special protection. And, you know, the wolves just kept on being wolves. Speaking of wolves, this year also saw the death of what is probably the most famous wolf in Oregon's history, OR7. Yeah, OR7 is one of the most famous wolves in history. I mean, full stop. In the early 2010s, he captured the imagination of people worldwide after he left his pack in northeast Oregon and took a thousands-mile journey across Oregon's Cascades into California and then back into southern Oregon in search of a mate. Now, this is just normal wolf behavior, but because he had a radio collar on, we could, you know, track him as it happened and see, you know, this incredible migration occurring in real time. And this is a big deal because he was the first wolf to enter this territory since the animals were exterminated in the 1940s. He eventually established the first pack in Western Oregon, the Rogue Pack, and that is just south of Crater Lake National Park, and had a number of pups. His death kind of marked the end of an era when wolves were this new, very controversial thing. Another big story was the fate of the northern spotted owl. Now, if wolves are the most controversial animal in eastern Oregon, spotted owls have historically been the most controversial here in western Oregon due to their impact on the logging industry. But spotted owls are in big trouble right now due to three factors. What are those? Yeah, so northern spotted owls were in trouble before this year started, you know, continued habitat loss and especially the invasion of a larger and more aggressive bird called the barred owl has really been trouble for spotted owls. Their numbers have been declining for a while. But you add these catastrophic wildfires, which really torched a lot of prime spotted owl habitat, and now it's like three things that they have to deal with. And it's really brought them to the brink of the extinction vortex. And that's, you know, just speaking to the Northwest top researcher. And what that means is they're getting to the point where they can't, where they're losing more than they're able to reproduce. And so it puts them into this bad, you know, downward cycle. The owls are basically fighting a war for survival on three different fronts. And it's, you know, it doesn't look good. Oddly, the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, recently decided that spotted owls are in such bad shape that they deserve to be uplisted from threatened to endanger, but the agency also decided that they wouldn't actually do that. So here's what they wrote. We find reclassification of the northern spotted owl from threatened species to an endangered species is warranted, but precluded by higher priority actions, they said. So what that means is they should be uplisted, but they're just not going to be um, and what that means for the future, we'll just have to wait and see. Anyway, I've got a super deep dive into the state of spotted owls, and you can read about that at statesmanjournal.com. All right, we're going to go ahead and end here with three positive stories back to back. What do you have for us, Zach? Okay, so the story is here. The first one, we wrote a lot at the beginning of the pandemic about the potential impact to outdoor recreation outfitters, and ultimately it wasn't quite as bad as expected. At the beginning of the pandemic, there was a real fear that, you know, the guides for rivers and fishing and backcountry would be in big trouble because people couldn't travel. But as the rules eased up a little bit and we sort of decided the outdoors was okay, um, they did find ways to run businesses. And a lot of the folks that I've talked to have said some version of we almost broke even or we did enough to, to survive. And, you know, that's kind of all you can hope for in 2020 if you're some businesses. The next story is one that's close to my heart. By some twist of fate, Gold Butte Lookout survived. 
Now, Gold Butte is a place we've talked about in this podcast, especially the one about fire lookouts. But it's a super cool place that you can rent for the night right above Detroit. A lot of history there. I figured it was toast during the wildfires, like just about everything around Detroit. But by some twist of fate, there was like this little green island between the Lion's Head fire and the Beachy Creek fire, just this tiny little green island. And that's where Gold Butte Lookout and Elk Lake were. So, you know, it survived and that's something. I have no idea when it'll actually reopen and people will be able to get back up there again, but at least we know it's there. The final piece of news is that, yes, the Eagle Creek Trail has reopened, and that gives us some hope for all the places burned by this year's fire. It took more than three years after the original Eagle Creek fire, but it has finally reopened, and from what I've seen from pictures, it looks pretty good. And so just about all the trails closed during that really bad 2017 fire season have reopened, so you know that this stuff does come back. It might take a while, but it does come back. So that's all we have for the biggest and most interesting stories of the year in Oregon's outdoors. We're going to finish up with uh, maybe some resolutions and hopes for the future. In the coming year, I personally hope to sort of leave my desk and home more often. After offices closed around the beginning of the pandemic and a bunch of us transitioned to working from home, it really started to feel like we were all living living at work rather than working from home. Um, But for the bigger picture, I really hope lessons learned following the wildfires are able to be translated to real change as far as preparedness and strategies for rebuilding these communities that were leveled. You know, I personally was sort of caught out when I was like, I might have to evacuate my home. I mean, I have the earthquake kit, but at the same time, does that make sense when you have to leave? Yeah. So it's, it's a bunch of new questions we have to face. Yeah, I agree. Well, my fondest hope is just for a slightly mellower fire season. Um, I mean, that's that's all I can ask for. I'll settle for mildly crazy. As for an adventure I'd like to take, I'm just really hoping to get out and do a ski tour around Crater Lake at some point this winter. Just want to camp on the edge of that magic lake, you know, look up in the dark sky and enjoy the silence of Crater Lake in winter. So that's my big 2021 resolution. Well, that's all the time we have left. We hope you got out of your house occasionally, had a few outdoor adventures this year, maybe looking forward to even more next year. We'd like to thank our sponsor one more time for helping us keep the podcast going. While honestly, our editors would probably rather we kick out a few more articles. American Forest Resource Council. AFRC advocates for sustainable public forest, healthy communities, and renewable wood products to meet America's needs. Learn more at amforest.org.